Okay, quiet on the set, everybody. Stand by. Roll camera. Speed. Roll sound. Speed. Market. And cue talent. Hello and welcome to another episode of This Week in Production. I'm your host, Art Aldridge, and joining me today from Anchorage, Alaska, Greg Heister. Hi, Art. How you doing, Greg? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm well. Good. So we're here doing some pre-production work on the Iditarod sled dog race. Yeah. It's an event that I met you at. Number yeah. How 12, many years ago now? About 12, 12 years ago. More than 10. Yeah, more than 10. Wow, you're getting old. And I guess we're going to talk about the logistics of producing yeah. an event like this. This is a very unique event in terms of production. But before we get into all of that, why don't you give the audience a little background on yourself? Well, I've worked in television, I think this is like my 30th year now. And I was in local news for a long time. I did sports for a long time, did news for a long time. I left that, um, I don't know, 12 to 15 years ago, started my own production company. And so I still work in television. I'm a play-by-play -play announcer for college football, basketball, baseball, but I have this production company that we incorporate the Iditarod into. I have a fly fishing show called Seasons on the Fly that airs currently on NBC Sports Network. It'll be moving to Discovery Channel in January. And so I've just made a living doing whatever I can and trying to stay as versatile as I can in this industry that is changing and seems like it's shrinking all the time. And and so I went from being just a talent person to kind of a guy now that can try to do everything, right? And I think it's important for all of us. And I've learned from Art Aldrich, like, uh, you know, you're a tech whiz, but you're also very skilled in production and creativity and the whole thing. The more you want to work the more you have to be able to do. When you get into this industry, it's about the creative process and you gotta be able to do anything you can just to be a part of it, because it's a privilege to be here. Yeah, nowadays more than ever. I mean, I think probably when you first started, I know when I first started, you had a job title and that was pretty much yeah. all you did. Like if yeah. you were a VTR operator, yeah, you yeah. didn't shoot. That's all true. you did was run a VTR. And if you were talent, yeah. you never touched a piece of equipment, no. except maybe a microphone. That's true. Let's get into the Iditarod a bit. And for those, I mean, I, I talk about it a lot just in, in my daily life. It's sort of encompassed a lot of what I do yeah. in many, many ways. But for the people who don't know what the Iditarod is, why don't you give me a little uh, description? Yeah, so it's a sled dog race that was started in 1973 by a gentleman named Joe Reddington Sr. There were other people involved too, but it was really his creation. And he was concerned as a guy who spent a lot of time in the wilderness across the state of Alaska that the sled dog was being replaced in the native communities across the state by snow machines or what many people call snowmobiles. And so Joe was a musher and had a huge kennel of dogs, and it was kind of what his lifestyle was. So he set out to create an event that would inspire a community to make sure that those animals continued to run across the landscapes of Alaska. And so when you zoom forward all these years to, to today, it's still very much about that. It's a celebration of these animals that may not be indigenous to this country, but they're very much a part of the landscape, just like caribou are, moose are. And so the day that there are no longer sled dogs running across the Arctic, 
would be a sad day for a lot of people who love the North Country. So uh, the Iditarod, for me, embodies all of that. But there's that great sense of adventure. There's, you know, uh, and I tell people all the time, the people who are best at this, many of them are highly educated. Many of them are extremely articulate. And for the most part, they're the hardest working people that you'd ever be around. If they were in the business world, they'd all be very, very wealthy. You're talking about the mushers? The mushers yeah. now, yeah. And so if they were you know, out like you and I trying to create a living, they would make a very good living because they're, they're hardworking people. But they've sacrificed all of that for a lifestyle and a chance to, to be close to the earth and, and to run dogs and to live a life that they love. And so it's always inspired me as a, as a storyteller. Most people that love the Iditarod are attracted to this because of the dogs. And I think they're great, Art. Like what they do, 150 miles a day, they eat 10,000 calories a day, and they, they keep going. But it's the people that have attracted me to this thing. So how did you get involved in doing the Iditarod in terms of production? Yeah, so what my first honor, so my first job in television was at WJW-TV in Cleveland. Great station, learned a lot. It was awesome. My first on-air job was at KIMO-TV in Anchorage, the, AB, the then ABC affiliate. And they had the official license with the Iditarod. They were the local TV station. And because of that, I was the only guy up here locally that was able to go out on the trail and cover the race from start to finish, where everybody else in town was doing it staggered, right? You'd get, go out for a few days and come back. And so what it allowed me to do is to get a real intimacy, not only with the trail, but the mushers, the people. And um, I may be wrong about this, but I think we were the first, at least local people that took snow machines the entire way from Anchorage to Nome in those years. So that's how you went up the trail was on a snow machine. Yeah, we had airplanes too. Uh, but I was the guy that said, hey, look, we got to start doing this on snow machine. ABC Wild World of Sports was here at the time. And they were doing some of the trail on Snow Machine. They would start in Unicleet and cover the, the Bering Sea coast in. And a guy named Darcy Marsh, and I believe he was the first guy to cover it television-wise from start to finish on Snow Machine. And so I was like, look, they're national, I get it. And they've got the, the resources and, and the money to do this without any problem. And they've got this unique character that's willing to do it. Like, we can do the same, even though I was working for a local TV station. And so... Uh, that started, uh, this was 1992, I want to say, 93, 94, something like that. Uh, and so off we went. And uh, we had a crew that would go the entire way from Anxious to Nome on Snow Machine and cover the race. We would do live shots in a place called McGrath, which is about 400, 450 miles into the race. And then Unilacleet, which was uh, the first native community on the Bering Sea coast. And so... It's 1,000 miles in all. You've been out there. You know what it's like, Art, and it's been a love affair. What was the next step to starting to work for the Iditarod producing what is now known as the Iditarod Insider? That all happened around 2006. So I had left uh, Anchorage in 2000 and went to work for a TV station down in Washington, the state of Washington. And so uh, the Insider was created actually the year prior to me coming, I believe, if I remember this right. And then they hired me just to do talent work for it because I had relationships. The people that were tasked with trying to make this happen were people that I knew from my original days around the race. And so they called me up and said, "Let's, we want you to come do talent. Okay, great. And so I showed up um, to do it, and it was a chance to get back on the trail and very happy. Were you here that first year? 
or we, did you Second come in 07 year. right 07, you came in yeah. 07 so 06 we go out there and and um and I, I didn't have anything to do with really the production quality or or anything like that on the race it was simply to do talent and it was very obvious to me once we got on the trail that the strategy and the philosophy being implemented was not going to work and so uh i was hired i think if I remember right, the, in 2007 to kind of oversee it all. And that's when I met you, right, somewhere in there. Yeah. And then the whole process uh, started because they were moving a C-band transmitter in 06 up and down the trail. And literally this is something that would take you three, three and a half hours to tear down. You have to get it into a little uh, airplane, transport it three, three and a half hours to set it up. And we're, we're trying to accomplish immediacy, right, and bring a live – feel to the fans of the Iditarod and it just didn't work. Now, there's a lot of logistics that I think most people will not understand about the Iditarod and covering it from a, a video perspective. Talk a little bit about some of the hurdles to cover this race the way we do. Yeah, I mean, first of all, it's cold, right? And and so, like, I tell people all the time, like, I fell in love with Panasonic P2 in the early years of this thing and and it really formulated like my little company that I was building simply because I never saw it fail. Literally never saw it fail. Never a corrupt file, never a camera. And we were using the uh, the 500s, the uh, HPX, 500s. HPX 500s, which in my, like they don't make it anymore. And I wish they would have just taken that camera and continued to mo make it moving forward because that thing was a workhorse, nearly indestructible. And at 50 below zero, the thing would fire up and shoot the footage that you needed really cold is the greatest hurdle that we have out there, right? Because uh, 50 below zero, you know, we you try to explain to people how cold that is, but until you're really out in it, you don't really understand how cold that is. And then you're going in, in and out sometimes, so condensation, you got to have a strategy for that if your camera has to go in at all and bring it back out because at 50 below, if that thing gets any water in it, trust me, it's going to freeze. So that's the greatest hurdle. And then... You're transporting this equipment across the Arctic. Sometimes no roads. Snow, no roads at all, right? So we have crews on snow machines that are, you know, it is in a Pelican box that is bolted to the back of their snow machine, and it's bouncing its way up and down the trail. The others are climbing in and out of, you know, little Cessna airplanes with the with the the the, uh, the gear. So it's got to be durable and sturdy and and withstand the type of pressures that we put on it. I mean, aside from the elements of weather mm. and geography, I mean, there's a fatigue element, too, in yeah. covering this race because it doesn't stop. It doesn't. Or, and it doesn't like there's no breaks. It's 24 hours. And so like you don't you don't work eight hours and then you get to go lay down somewhere like you work and you work and you work and you're like, hey, you got an hour. Go lay down under that tree. Literally, so they go lay down under the tree and and they power nap, and then you got to go kick them, and then people get up and get their camera and and get it going again. You know, it, it's funny because we've worked with a lot of different entities over the years covering this race, Discovery, Nat Geo, uh, Versus back in the day, and they would all want to you know implement their own camera guys, and and I would always, you know, hesitantly talk to them about that. Look, I know that. You, whoever this person is and like well this person's done this and they've done this and they're this and they've won this award and that award i'm like i i get it like they're really talented and and you got a lot of confidence but this thing is different 
I have seen people cry. I've seen people have to be medevaced out uh, for both physical and emotional reasons uh, because it's relentless. And uh, you can't prepare yourself. If you've never been in, if you've never been in 50 below weather, like you cannot prepare yourself. There's no parka that's going to keep you warm. There's and no we're not we're not talking gloves. about wind chills no. of 50. We're no. talking about actual yeah. temperature readings of 50 below. Yeah, and everything frosts up, right? And your your eyes will freeze. You know, you... it's it's crazy. Like I find it interesting. I'm kind of sick like that, right? But I love it when it gets cold because just to see your body react to it and and how you react and other people and and things like that, I find it highly interesting. But I'm also not the guy that's having to slide his, you know, big glove off to use a little thinsulate glove so he can put it up into the the holder on his lens, right, and run a camera for an hour and a half shooting interviews and, and mushers coming in. So I have great respect and admiration for uh, the members that are part of our crew because they're they're unique and they're they're cut from a different cloth and year in and year out they they battle. How do they get around this thousand mile landscape? Yeah, so we have we have airplanes, right? And so people all the time they want to talk. Well, has a musher ever died covering the Iditarod? And well, no. Is it dangerous for the mushers? Sure, so, but it's most dangerous for us in the media covering this sled dog race because we're flying around in these little airplanes, and uh, they. I don't want to say they crash often. But there's a calculated risk every time you get into a small airplane flying across the Arctic in the wintertime. So uh, these planes, uh, generally speaking, will have four seats in them. Uh, so you'll climb in there with your camera guy and, and with your gear. We have, to, we have to travel really light. The more you take, the more you have to carry, and the more unsafe the airplane gets because you're, you don't want to overload it. Yeah. Yeah. So like all of that stuff comes into uh context you know when you're out there and you understand that uh you just have to be careful and and you just know that you're going to be miserable like there's no creature comforts i don't believe in that stuff there's just no creature comforts you just got to know that for nine days i'm going to be really uncomfortable yeah because there's no there's no hotels necessarily there's sometimes a floor to sleep on yes sometimes at the very best at the very best it's yeah. a floor sometimes you get a uh, a mattress pad yeah in a gym on occasion yeah. yeah so it's not glamorous by any stretch no 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 it's it's not glamorous at all art but i tell people all the time it's a lot like climbing a mountain halfway up you'll be turning your buddy and you say please don't let me ever do this again like i don't ever want to be this miserable and uncomfortable again please do not let me do it and then you get to the end and for whatever reason it, you're like i can't wait to do this again like that was the coolest experience of my professional career because it was more than just being out there shooting television what a tremendous life experience and adventure and when you think about it and you know the who's who's of television and this great tremendous historical now uh, industry that we've all had this privilege to work in how many how so few people get to do what we do and i think as storytellers there's no better story than to tell about dogs and mushers going across the greatest landscape that we have on this planet so when you get to the end of it and you've suffered through everything that you suffered through you look back and you're like okay where do i sign up for next year right and a lot of your crew is repeat yeah they come back and and honestly 
Like I want him to come back because you cannot you cannot replace experience, right? This whole world, and I'll tell you this, works about on relation, building relationships. And so you build relationships with these mushers. You get to know when's a good time to approach, when's not a good time to approach. He looks pretty tired. This might not be a good time. Some mushers are better when they're really sleepy tired. And so you get to learn those dynamics, right? You understand, okay, this this dog I can get close to, this dog I can't get close to. So, And then you, maybe most important, all these little communities that we go through, you learn people's names and they see you from year to year. And it's like seeing old family when you show up. And then you say, hey, look, I could really use a Coca-Cola right now. Anybody got a Coca-Cola around here? And you'd be surprised at what shows up, right? And so that's all relationship building. They don't know you. Mushers don't know you. Like you're just not going to be able to get the content that that we need. We'll put up some links in the show notes about the stuff that you're producing. But basically, the Iditarod Insider is a subscription service that yeah. the Iditarod, which is a not-for-profit, produces to generate revenue, help you know, keep the race going the whole bit, but it's a large part of their operating budget comes from these subscription revenues. You produce little, basically little news packages every day. Tell me a little bit about the the work process. Yeah. And so, and, and art, you're a big, you're a huge part of that too, right? I mean, it's you guys and your team, like you've, you've completely uh, redone when you came on board, how we do it. And Basically, we're the YouTube of Iditarod. We're the YouTube of of mushing. Anything we find, it's uh, a little more sophisticated. It than is YouTube. Though. It is. I mean, there there is certainly a strategy to it and a philosophy. But you know, we're we're just trying to make sure that when we get to Nome, that we have put forth or put forward uh, the story of that Iditarod from start to finish with as many mushers as we can. So we average 40 to 50 different pieces of video each day, I think, if we went back and monitored that. And so that can be anywhere from a 10-second clip of a wolf running across the river to an eight-minute interview done with a musher somewhere on the trail. We'll put time lapses up there. We put drone footage. Uh, back in the day, used to be West Cam footage that we would we would put a lot of raw footage up there. And in the last few years, through your uh, genius, we've started to to do a lot of streaming, right? And uh, I I think that is revolutionizing who we are, what we are. It's allowing us to really kind of find the potential for this. And and I maybe for some people listening, they don't understand how big of an undertaking that is. But we're dealing with areas on this trail where there's no cell phone coverage and the the bandwidth or the Wi-Fi that we have access to is coming through a school whose pipe is tiny and it it may provide internet for the entire community. So it's certain times a day when everybody's on their internet in that town, like the band, the pipe just shrinks down and we have a hard time compressing an eight second piece of footage, let alone an eight minute piece of footage. So that's, you know, brought us real challenges, but it's also led to the great pride and sense of accomplishment over these years as we've been able to push the envelope with technology and bring the world the story of this race in ways that it's never been done before. So you you use P2 cameras, you offload in the field, you've got a yeah. little MacBook, not a little, you got a 15-inch MacBook Pro that you take out, you're using Final Cut Pro 10. Yeah. And you're you're cutting basically on little portable drives. Yes. 
and everything fits into either a backpack yeah. or a pelican. Yeah. And it's it's like a, it's, it's a little bit like MASH. It's a mobile army surgical hospital in the sense that sure. you come in, you set up your camp, you bust out a whole bunch of stuff, you pack it up, you move on to the next front. Yeah. Yeah. And it all gets put up to the website and then it, it culminates at the end of the race in Nome where you set up a little more of an infrastructure, a couple of offload stations, and then you have to do this big uh, media collection. Yes. But what happens then? You cut a feature doc, do you not? Yeah. So, you know, every inch of the video is logged. And some years, I don't know if we will this year, but for the last few years, anyway, we've, we've had somebody during the race that is logging the footage. Uh, she wouldn't always get it done. There would be some left for the end. But uh, that's all logged. I write a show, and then we put together probably a two-hour, on average, it's a two-hour documentary that – uh, like for me, it's the crowning jewel of this entire process because uh, although the insider clips are up there available for a long time, it's these documentaries uh, in DVD form that will live on coffee tables and on shelves in people's homes for generations to come, especially in the mushing community, because these very much become the story or what's remembered about that year going forward. And so I take great pride in that art. And I think that there's, you know, there's legacy in that, like all of us, including yourself, that are a part of this, like in a little way, uh, we're touching lives and we're leaving a legacy behind with the skills that we have developed in this industry that we're in. And it's an important one. It may not go out to the masses in a way that, you know, somebody working for the NFL films does, or somebody who, you know, when you look at the history of the Super Bowl or the National Football League. But in this community, this mushing community that is uh, maybe not a big deal in the lower 48, it's a huge deal in Alaska, and it's a bigger deal in Europe. Like these products are important. And uh, this little moment in time, this two-week period of every year, will be uh, remembered forever because of that product that we do. You know, it's won numerous Emmy Awards. It's it's a very good product. Yeah. And it, I think most people who watch it can't appreciate all the production behind the scenes that has to go into it. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot. Think about how much we shoot over, you know, a two-week period and how many interviews we do. Um, I mean, it's it's a uh, it's got to be a couple of hundred hours of footage that you have to go through and and knock it all down and and produce it and you know and just sitting in front of a computer making a two hour you know and again it's a one man band deal right the last couple of years I've I've had a guy named Josh Godfrey edit the thing and he's gotten gotten an appreciation on how big of an undertaking it is to. Put down it's a, a lot of time. I mean, pick. any 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 product that's a feature like yeah. is is work and it time. Is. Yeah, and so it's you know it, it is a lot of work, and I tell people all the time, you're like, all right, Iditarod doesn't really end until that that piece is done, but um, it's a it's a worthy piece. It's an important piece, and it's a it's a great ending chapter for all of our experiences. What do you think, in terms of technology, the three biggest changes in technology that have influenced the coverage of the Iditarod? Uh, getting off tape, right? Because tape heads froze. You know, back in my early days, I told people all the time it was during the time of, you know, the Betacam. 
and everybody had beta cams out there and they thought that they were hunky-dory. Well, the little outfit that I was working for was still shooting on a three-quarter inch camera with the umbilical cord connected to a deck that you had on your other shoulder, right? That thing, Art, never failed, ever. Those really? heads never froze. Wow. I had guys from ABC Wild World of Sports come to us and say, hey, can we use your video? Because I'm like, sure. And so getting away from tapes, because the cold does not like those, or the heads on those cameras, they do not like the cold. So getting off, getting tapes Tapeless was, was big. huge. Yep. You know, live streaming, being live. I, well, let me back up. I, I can remember the first time we were in Nikolai, and I, you know there was a guy, Stan Hooley, and he's no longer the executive director, but he was here for a long time. And, and he took a tremendous amount of pride in this, and a guy named Chad St. George did as, as well. And and I can remember we were in Nikolai, which is the first native village or community on the trail. And a team came in. We shot it. I sprinted up to the school, which was, I don't know, 200 yards away, took that footage, offloaded it, compressed it. You were part of this whole process. And within 30 seconds later or something, it's up and the world could see it. It was as close to a live image from anywhere on the trail that we had ever, ever. And so that was like, it, it almost, like it, it sounds weird, it almost brought me to tears, but there was so much pride in that moment that the vision, we were on the road to the ultimate vision. So getting rid of tape, uh, the fact that we were, we were almost live, that look, four minutes later the world could see what had just happened was an enormous thing to be out in the middle of the wilderness and nowhere. And then the year that we started to stream, we had live pictures coming from place. These are from places. These are, you know, huge moments. When you're streaming live, a live streaming picture from Iditarod, which is a ghost town, 40,000 people lived there in the early 1900s, and today it's gone. There's nobody there for hundreds of miles, and you're able to stream a live picture out of there. It was, you know, it's like going live from the top of Everest. Yeah. It really is. Like, it's no different than that. You are in the middle of nowhere. And so the fact that we were able to, you know, through all these years of hard work and process uh, to get that done, it was pretty special. What about uh, some tips for people working in cold weather? You've obviously have had to come up with ways to make equipment work. and Yeah. So you have any tips for, for people working out in cold? Well, just just remember that I think it's better off if you leave the camera out in cold. Even if you're going to go in for the night and sleep, I would just leave the doggone thing out in the cold. Better to do that as long as it's not going to rain on it or something like that. Um, you know, always carry a plastic bag with you. If you do have to bring it in, you put the entire camera inside a plastic bag. It will help with condensation. Our guys all carry plastic bags with them, garbage bags put the entire camera in it when you bring it in and it will slow down on the, the condensation. You know, in, in the cold weather, I, I, I just think it's about keeping yourself as comfortable as you can too, or like vapor barrier socks and uh, finding a, a pair of gloves uh, that you can wear and still operate a camera. Because at 50 below zero, you touch metal, you will freeze your skin instantly. Like you will kill skin cells instantly right and it'll hurt like it burn burns so in uh the early days of the uh 2000 camera the hpx 2000 cameras that we were using big shoulder mounted cameras they ran really warm 
And the P2 cards that were in the <clears throat> in the back of the camera would also get warm. Yes. And one of the producers, Carrie, I remember this, <laughs> popped a P2 card out with a bare hand. Her hand was cold, touched the hot P2 yes. card. Yes. And then it was stuck to her Damn. hand yes. in a painful way. Yeah. So you have to be careful when yeah. you have extreme temperature changes, even within a small you know, camera setup. You might have part of the camera that's really hot, and maybe your hand is cold. Yeah, and you can definitely. I mean, you you see it with the mushers out here. You will find very few metal dog dish dog bowls, food bowls, out here because they have to have a glove on if they're going to touch that when it's fifty below zero, right? So you still see them from time to time, which still amazes me whenever I see a dog dish that's made of metal because of that. You you really have to be. You know, there's a lot of metal on all these cameras. And so you have to be conscious of that. It hurts to get frostbite. Greg, thank you for uh, speaking with me today. And, and our, let me just say this, and I don't know whoever watches this or listens. I guess not no one's watching. Listen, no, listens no to one's it. watching. But like, like you've been a huge part of this, man. Your your expertise and your technical knowledge and all of this stuff. Like, I don't think the Iditarod and the Insider is what it is today without your participation. So. Well, thank you. It has yeah. definitely been a progression and a team. <laughs> a painful one. But uh, yeah. but we know. got here, right? I mean, it's trial and error, and we kept sawing wood. Yeah. So we're getting some place, yeah. but yeah. Well, thank Mutual you for respect. joining us, yeah. and uh, I'll put some show notes in there. People can you know, check it out this year, so, yeah. you know, see what we're doing. Yeah, it'd be good. All right, thank good. you. That was a lot of fun. It would be even better if you could add something to the conversation. Drop me an email at thisweekinproduction at gmail.com. Or even better, call our new TWIP voice mailbox and leave us a message. 601-564-TWIP. That's 601-564-8947. Also, a reminder that This Week in Production is available on all major podcast platforms, including Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play. So please subscribe to get every episode. Lastly, if you like what you hear, would you mind giving me a rating or a review? I'd appreciate that. Okay, that's a wrap on This Week in Production. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.